Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside Horror Show. All right, we are in Alabama this week. Alabama, not just a band? Not just a band. It's actually a state. That's their motto, I think, actually. <laughs> Alabama, not just a band. Well, what we like to do is talk about some fun facts about each new state we visit. You know I love my fun facts. I know you love your fun facts. So I do have a eclectic mix of fun facts for you today, Eden, about Alabama. Nice. Let's start off with something random that I never knew. The first civilian aviation school in the U.S. was opened in Alabama. So the first place where folks That makes sense. Does it? Yes. Why? Uh, Well, I'll get into that uh, with my intro for my story. Oh, okay. All I have additionally into that fact is that it was started by the Wright Brothers. Okay. In Montgomery, Alabama, or outside of Montgomery, Alabama. I'm like, that's cool. Wright Brothers, like OG flight. That is very true. Alabama is home to the only bookstore in the world that only sells signed copies. Oh. Yep. It's hidden away in Birmingham, and it's a bookstore that is called the Alabama Booksmith. It has been in operation for 25, 30 years, and they only sell rare or used books that are all signed by the author. That's really cool. Yeah. And probably expensive. The first successful open heart surgery on a live patient was in Alabama. Wow. Yeah, Montgomery. A 13-year-old boy was involved in a fight and stabbed through the heart. Oh, shit. And they were able to perform the open heart surgery to save his life. Well, I'm glad that they saved his life, but that whole thing is very tragic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, According to the Pew Research Center, Alabama is the most religious state in the U.S. That sounds about right. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. The first operational windshield wipers were invented in Alabama huh? way back in 1903 by Alabama native Mary Anderson. Oh, a female. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Awesome. Alabama is the only state in the U.S. to have an alcoholic beverage as its official drink. What? I know, way better than who had milk. It was like Connecticut or something. Virginia. <laughs> Virginia had milk. In Alabama, the official state drink is called, I'll butcher this and I apologize, Cone Cook. Ridge Whiskey, officially called Clyde Mays Alabama Style Whiskey. It's a high quality aged moonshine whiskey produced in the state. It's the official state spirit. That is interesting. All right. Mm-hmm. Also, it may have been West Virginia, but I'm pretty sure it was Virginia. Yeah, the milk. Yeah. Sounds sounds about right. Alabama does not have an officially recognized nickname. Okay. Uh, it has been called in the past uh, the Yellowhammer State after the state bird the Heart of Dixie, the Cotton State, but it's never officially designated a nickname for itself. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, that's weird because it's kind of like the U.S. in general. A lot of people think that our like national language is English. Right. We don't have a national language. Right. Yeah, it's just... We don't have one at all. Alabama was the first state to declare Christmas a legal holiday way back in 1836. Huh. Okay. It wasn't a... Christmas wasn't a federal holiday until 1870. Okay. So again, going back to those Christian roots. Yeah. The first rocket that sent man to the moon was designed in Alabama. Yep. Huntsville. That's correct. Cool. Do they call Huntsville like the rocket city or something? It's um something like that. It's like, I know it's the star of Alabama and then there's something else. It's in my intro, I think. Cool. The rocket city. Yeah. The rocket city. That's cool. Alabama is the only state 
in the contiguous United States where all three ingredients needed to make iron and steel can be found in close proximity to each other. Nice. So they have, because they are kind of this weird cross section of Appalachia and the Piedmont and also the Deep South. Yeah. Like the Appalachian foothills provide all of those resources. This is kind of funny, actually. The Alabama Constitution is the longest of any of the 50 states' constitutions. Huh. <laughs> that's over crazy. 300,000 words. Holy shit. <laughs> that's like a Harry Potter book. Right? <laughs> For comparison, the whole U.S. Constitution is only about 4,500 words. Oh, my God. <laughs> they got a lot of laws. This is interesting. I didn't know this either. Mobile, Alabama used to be the capital of Louisiana. It was first founded as the colonial capital of French Louisiana in 1702. Really? I didn't know that. That kind of makes a little bit of sense because I know Mobile has like a fantastic Mardi Gras celebration. It was one of the first places to celebrate Mardi Gras. Oh. Yeah. So actually Mobile was the home of the first Mardi Gras celebration. That's cool. Way back in, you guessed it, 1703. So the next year they're like, here's the city. Yeah. We got to have a party. Yeah, so that's some fun facts about Alabama. Thank you for that. I try. Sometimes. Sometimes. Not always. <laughs> that's why I'm so good at trivia, because I look up fun facts every week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I play a trivia game and uh, do just well enough to come in second every like, time. I know this. Yeah. <laughs> so, Eden, I'm assuming you have a true crime story for us. I then? have a doozy of a story for oh, yeah? you. It just got crazier as I went on with my notes, so it's it's quite the story. I'm excited. This week's fun and festive romp, okay, that was pure sarcasm, but it takes place in Huntsville, Alabama. Oh, the Rocket City. I'm sure our U.S. listeners, no matter which state they live in, have at least heard of Huntsville. It's one of the first places I think of when I think of Alabama, along with Birmingham, Mobile, and oddly enough, Sylacauga. Uh, most of you have probably not heard of Silicaga, but it's the birthplace of Jim Neighbors, a.k.a. Gomer Pyle. Mm. Back to Huntsville, though. It's in kind of a weird spot where it's actually in three different counties. That is odd. It's the county seat of Madison County, but parts of it are also in Limestone and Morgan counties. That must be such a pain in the butt when you move and you, you know, maybe just move like a couple of streets away. But, but then, you're like, in the different. Yeah. <laughs> so like your whole, you have to re-register like your voting place. If you need to do exactly. anything with City Hall, it changes. It has a population of around 180,000, making it pretty large. It's also larger than average um, in area as well at 215 square miles. Huntsville is nicknamed the Rocket City, like we said before, and for good reason, as it has a lot of history in space travel. America's first satellite, Explorer 1, was launched from Huntsville. It's also the birthplace of one of my favorite actresses, and Nicole, I know you love her too, Felicia Day. <laughs> While all these things make Huntsville a really cool city, I am of course here to talk, just like every week, about something that'll bring down the room. Like murder. So, this is the story of Amy Bishop Anderson, a.k.a. the Faculty Meeting Murders. Wow. Faculty Meeting Murders. Yeah. Never knew the PTA could be so vicious. Oh, it's it's not the PTA, but it's... Uh, this time. It's just as deadly. <laughs> Let's start by talking a little bit about Amy Bishop Anderson. She was born on April 24th of 1965 
in, I believe, Braintree, Massachusetts. I'm kicking myself for choosing this story because it forced me to spell Massachusetts yet again. (laughs) I don't know why, but my brain does not like trying to spell Massachusetts, and I always add extra letters that don't need to be there. Massachusetts. It's just like, I don't know. I want to throw in like an extra E like in several places, and I don't know what I'm doing when I spell it. Anyway, by all accounts, she was a very smart woman. She got her undergrad degree at Northeastern University in Boston and went on to get a PhD in genetics from Harvard. There was an anonymous source that came out and said her dissertation was of poor quality, though, and that she didn't deserve to have a doctorate. But it's kind of bitchy. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I wasn't there, and I also did not have the time or energy to read the near 200 pages of it. So y'all can speculate on that all you want. I'm not going to get into it. She began teaching at the University of Alabama in Huntsville in 2003. There are three University of Alabama locations. The main one, as far as I know, so sorry, Alabama, if I get that wrong, but I think the main university is in Tuscaloosa. And there's another one in Birmingham as well as this one. I honestly don't know a whole lot about the University of Alabama other than it's made, it has a major rivalry in college football with Auburn University. I know that, yeah. Uh, don't worry, though. I'm sure that won't become part of our story anyway, so... What I did find out from my research is they are the only school in Alabama to offer doctorates in anthropology, music, romance languages, social work, communications, and a few others. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's very diverse. So when Amy was hired on here, she went to work as an associate professor in the biological sciences department. Before this, she was an instructor at Harvard Medical School. She was also an amateur novelist and has three unpublished novels one of which I will, actually two of which I will talk about later. Writing may just be in her blood, however, because she's related to screenwriter John Irving, who did The Cider House Rules. Uh, They are second cousins. Hmm. She was also part of a writer's group in Ipswich when she lived there. People said that she would constantly bring up her relation to John Irving to gain cred. Others in the group described her as smart but abrasive, and one person described her as feeling entitled to praise. I'm kind of forming a picture because I feel like I've met this kind of intelligent person before. We all have. (laughs) When she started working at the University of Alabama, she kind of had a similar reputation with colleagues saying that she was a bit strange to being downright crazy and would interrupt faculty meetings and go on weird tangents with stuff that was way out of left field. I don't know about you, but I think we're all guilty of that from time to time. I know my brain switches from one topic to another faster than the speed of freaking light. So, <laughs> and to get back, I have to like explain where my brain went. You said this, which made me think of this, which led me to this. And that's why I said that, you know, welcome to the rabbit hole. Yeah. Now, you know how my crazy brain works. She was similarly unliked by her students as well. Uh, she would kick students out of her labs quite often And a lot of her students would ask for transfers from her class because they just didn't like her. Yikes. She also just seemed to not be very good at teaching. So God only knows why she decided to get into it in the first place. Her students disliked her so much, in fact, that in 2009, they petitioned the school to either get rid of her or make her change her behavior. My sources were pretty vague on which one it was, but I'd say that speaks volumes. Yeah, that's a... Interesting, yet also kind of depressing. Oh, yeah. In March of 2009, 
She was up for tenure but was denied, which was a serious blow for her, and she figured this meant that they probably wouldn't take her back in 2010 because why would they if they weren't giving her tenure? Mm-hmm. She even went as far as to tell a friend slash coworker who was also on her tenure committee that her life was over from this decision. I mean, it's a career setback for sure. Absolutely. But a bit dramatic. Yeah. And also, I'm not surprised they didn't offer her tenure considering students are already complaining about her. Exactly. The faculty doesn't like you. The students don't like you. Chances are you're not going to stay there. Yeah. She ended up trying to appeal this decision, but the appeal was also denied. This was very upsetting, and her husband said that she had been stressed out about it a lot. They had four kids, so that's a lot of mouths to feed. Whoa. And one of which I think was a student at the college as well. Some of the issues with her tenure were that she, first of all, wasn't well-liked by faculty or students, like I said, but also that she didn't publish enough papers to count toward tenure, because you need to publish. Publish or perish, right? Yep, exactly. She seemed to think, however, that this was not the case and that she'd done everything right in this situation and was exceeding expectations. She even went to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, citing discrimination based on the fact that she was a woman because she had learned that one of her male colleagues who was on her tenure review committee called her crazy behind her back. The colleague in question did not retract this statement after this and said, I said she was crazy multiple times and I stand by that. This woman has a pattern of erratic behavior. She did things that were not normal. She was out of touch with reality. Wow. So, I mean, I don't think it makes you sexist to call a woman crazy. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, a man can be crazy, too. It's not like you're like, are you on your period? Like, you know, that would be... You're hysterical. Yeah. Why are you asking questions? Exactly. That would be a bit much, but that was definitely not... The case there. Mm -mm. Well, about a year after all this went down, on February 12, 2010, a faculty meeting took place for the biology department in a conference room on the third floor of the Shelby Center for Science and Technology. Amy was in attendance along with 12 or 13 others, but where I said earlier that she's usually like talkative and went off on tangents, Mm -hmm. she was just really taciturn. She didn't really say much. She just sat in her chair by the door and listened. This meeting was called to talk about the next semester, and since Amy was already sure she was getting canned, she felt that she didn't really need to be there but attended anyway. The meeting lasted about an hour where Amy was completely silent, but just as it wrapped up, Amy reached into her purse and pulled out a 9mm handgun, a Ruger semi-automatic to be exact, and she opened fire. She shot the chairman of the biology department, and I'm sorry, it's an Indian name and I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong, Gopi Podila? I don't know. I always, like, I look at it and it looks very similar to the Spanish last name of Padilla, And so that's where my brain goes all the time, but not that. So don't know how to pronounce that name. Hope I pronounced it right. Sorry if I didn't. Uh, She shot him in the head before going around the room execution style. Oh, my God. So it's not even like a wild like gum and it's like. No, this was very like. Yeah. It's horrible. She killed three people. Padilla, um, Maria Ragland Davis and Adriel Johnson. She injured three others, Luis Rogelio Cruz Vera, Joseph G. Leahy, uh, they were both biology professors, and she also shot Stephanie Monticiliolo, who was a staff assistant. Okay. 
One of the survivors is quoted as saying, she got up suddenly, took out a gun, and started shooting at each of us. She started with the one closest to her and went down the row shooting her targets in the head. Oh my God. Yeah. Everyone shot was on one side of the table while the ones on the other side of the table had time to drop to the floor when she started shooting. Mm -hmm. Uh, They couldn't run away since she was blocking the only exit. She stopped shooting when either her gun jammed or she ran out of bullets. According to one source, one survivor tried to reason with her or calm her down and pushed through her, getting the others to safety. While Dateline said that she ran out of the room after she her gun didn't work anymore. Okay. Either way, she threw the gun and her jacket into a bathroom trash can and just made a break for it. She then called her husband on her cell phone to come pick her up. I would not have waited for a freaking ride. You don't just hang around after that. You run. Like, babe, can you give me a ride? Exactly. I would love to hear that phone conversation. Oh, hi, honey. How are you? Uh huh. And the kids? Great. Well, I'm all done shooting. If you want to come pick me up now, kisses. <laughs> really? Like, okay. She was quite obviously picked up and detained by police before her husband could even get there. Clearly. Thankfully. Yeah. When asked about the shooting, she tried playing dumb and being like, what shooting? Officer, I wasn't even there. This didn't happen. Oh, those weren't blood stains. That office just had a shoddy paint job. Amy. Yeah. Okay. So that last comment never happened, but she really did try to say that nothing happened and that she wasn't there at all. Her exact words were, it didn't happen. No way. Yes way, Amy. Yes exactly. Way. Yeah. On my birthday, February 19th, 2010. Same year too. I just turned 10 for all those of you wondering. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, on February 19th, 2010, they held a memorial service for the victims of the shooting on campus. The police obviously knew Amy was to blame for the shooting because guess what? There were plenty of witnesses still alive. But that didn't stop them from doing a little digging into Amy's background and they found some disturbing things. This is where it gets really nuts. You ready? Mm-hmm, I'm ready. First, in 1986, when Amy was just 21, she shot and killed her 18-year-old brother, Seth Bishop, but this had been ruled as an accident. This was back in Braintree, which is still the weirdest name for a town ever. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Massachusetts, but it's a weird name for a town. This happened with a 12-gauge shotgun. Oh. Uh, And there was like... um, I think it had like a pump action. Mm -hmm. So like, how do you accidentally... Maybe she was cleaning it? Because it was two shots fired. Oh, yeah, no. So, um, yeah, she fired two shots. Uh, one into her wall and another into her brother's chest. Then she aimed it at a passing car outside and tried to get into the car. What the? That was... must have been an accident, too, because, you know. Oh, my God. These things happen. I think they need to check the definition of accident. Yes. Even though it was ruled an accident. Everything about it was suspect, and the official paperwork had gone missing in 1988. So two years later, all paperwork was gone. Do, I, you, do you happen to know what her parents did? Like, uh, I'll get to that. Okay. I'm like, this stinks of like covering up for your kid. Yeah. Um, everyone is pretty sure that it was a big cover-up, in fact, and her mother was a big supporter of the chief of police at the time. So oh, that's where that okay. comes from. It's all shady as fuck. Mm-hmm. Um, she apparently also took the shotgun to a car dealership and pointed it at two employees there trying to get a car. But that's not how that works. I know. On June 16, 2010, 
she was charged for killing her brother finally. Uh, so that one did get wrapped up. It was also weird because one of those unpublished novels had the main character try to scare a friend with a shotgun, but instead ended up shooting her friend's brother. Well, write what you know, I guess. Yeah. There is some speculation with this that she may have intended to frighten or kill her father with the gun instead of her brother because they just had an argument. Hmm. The second crazy thing in her past that they found was at Harvard in 1993, where Amy's lab supervisor was sent two pipe bombs in the mail that failed to detonate. Both she and her husband were suspected in this. They think that she was responsible because she was afraid of getting a bad review from him about her work because she knew she wasn't doing a very good job, and she ended up resigning and was very upset about it. He looked at you had something to say. No, I'm just like, God, that's not how it works. I'm sorry. I'm just like, so like what? I get being upset because like you slacked off and you failed, but like don't own that shit. Yeah. Like, come on. Exactly. Her husband was quoted as saying he wanted to shoot, stab, or strangle the lab supervisor for making his wife so upset. The two would not cooperate during the investigation at all and were the main suspects but were not charged due to lack of evidence. Wow, that's quite the crazy-ass love connection there. Oh, it really is. Like such an enabler. I know. I'm like, oh, cool. You have no checks and balances in your life, do you? Exactly. Uh, Are you ready for my my favorite one? Uh, Okay, yeah. Our third piece of crazy comes in the form of an assault charge at the local IHOP in Peabody, Massachusetts. Amy was mad that this other woman got the last booster seat and stormed over to her, demanding that she give her the booster seat, which was so rightfully hers. Oh, my God. She started cursing the woman out, but the woman would not give up this seat. So she punched her in the face and shouted, I am Dr. Amy Bishop. God, what an entitled piece of shit. I know. I wanted her to not only shout, I am Dr. Amy Bishop, be like, and you're in my fucking house, the International (laughs) House of Pancakes, bitch. But she didn't. So Uh, she was actually charged for this one, at least, and got probation on charges of misdemeanor assault and disorderly conduct. The victim was later attempted to be interviewed after the shooting took place and said, quote, it's not something I want to relive and just didn't comment further. Okay. I'm a reasonable person. I put it behind me because she's crazy. Because she's nuts. Yeah. The judge also recommended anger management, but Amy did not take it. Surprise. Yeah. It makes you wonder if things would have turned out a little differently in 2010 had she actually listened to the judge and taken the anger management. So that's her past. Now let's see what we're doing in 2010. You know, aside from gutting down your coworkers. Yeah. I do want to mention, however, that she also wrote another unpublished novel about a woman who was worried about not getting tenure. So that one was also pretty true to life. And I believe that's the same novel in which we get our next bit of crazy from. Okay. Because there is more to come. After the shooting, some people at her school were afraid that she had created a quote unquote herpes bomb and placed it inside the science building to give everyone herpes. Yeah. Is that even a thing? I don't know. I can hear Oprah right now saying, and you get herpes, and you get herpes, herpes for everyone. (laughs) I don't know if a herpes bomb is a real thing, but the idea stemmed from both the fact that she had worked with the virus previously 
and that in her one novel, she wrote about a virus similar to herpes spreading across the world. Uh, that's like some straight up like supervillain plotting right there. I know. <laughs> they never found this herpes bomb. Thank God. Can you imagine they did? <laughs> They're like, I think that's the herp bomb. I don't know. You're just the one when there's an outbreak of herpes has occurred at the University of Alabama. In the end, she was charged with one count of capital murder and three charges of attempted murder. She was remanded without bail and held in the Madison County Jail. She was placed on suicide watch, as is normal for this sort of thing. They were pretty clear about going for the death penalty in this case, too. Mm -hmm. They searched her home at this time and thought they found a bomb, but it turned out to be nothing. I was really hoping it would have been the fabled herpes bomb, but I guess I'll have to remain disappointed. Just the herpes bomb prototype. <laughs> Just kidding. It's a canister vacuum. Oh, no. This is this is only the, the, the Valtrex uh, canister Valtrex. to keep everything in check after the herpes one has gone off. Uh, she told her lawyer when he visited her in jail that she didn't remember committing the murders and he worked a defense that she was a paranoid schizophrenic, but that was abandoned pretty early on. Um, upon being charged with the murder of her brother as well, she did attempt suicide in the Huntsville jail. Two of the survivors actually sued both Amy and her husband for damages, and wrongful death suits were also filed against Amy, her husband, and the school. In the end, she did end up trying the insanity defense after all. In 2012, the families of the victims wrote to the judge saying that there had already been too much death and just general horribleness, and they didn't want her to get the death penalty. So instead, uh, they made a deal, and she changed her plea to guilty and was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Wow. She got off easy on her brother's murder, however, since Massachusetts decided not to extradite her, feeling that her punishment was already severe enough. The following year, she tried to appeal her sentence, saying she didn't understand the minimum sentencing, nor was she aware that she could change her plea, nor was she aware of the rights that she had waived away. They rejected her appeal, and she is currently serving her sentence in Julia Tutwiler Prison for Women in Wetumpka, Alabama. So that is the crazy-ass story of the faculty meeting murders. Wow. That's... Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's so interesting because it's this clear ticking time bomb when you know the whole history of like what she did oh, from the age nuts. of like 18 on, right? Yeah. Because at first you're like, oh, she's just an eccentric professor who was really stressed out and got pushed to the edge and snapped. That's what you initially think. And then you then look back. Yeah. You realize she's this like terribly like homicidally entitled person who just thinks that the world owes her something she's yeah she's just she's wow just gonna you know act out absolutely mm -mm. Mm -mm. i don't often say this but i'm kind of glad she's in jail yeah me too because i mean i don't want a herpes bomb exploding in my house agreed so my sources for this week were wikipedia insidehook.com dateline time capsule newyorker.com StarTribune.com, CBSNews.com, and the New York Times. Cool. All right, guys, we're going to take a little break to, you know, check for herpes bombs in the house. Make sure there's nothing here because, you know, Amy might be back up to her tricks. I don't know. Got to sweep for bombs. Yep. We will see y'all in a little bit. Hey, hey guys, guys, Eden and Nicole, Nicole here. here. 
We wanted to let you know about the second annual Pocono Witches Festival, where Roadside Horror Show will be having their very first live show. Come join us at Slippery Rock Resort in Lake Harmony, Pennsylvania for a spooky yet funny show in a haunted location. You can experience all the beauty of Lake Harmony while getting your spooky on with several events, hosted by our friend, the Pocono Witch, E. Massey. Enjoy a spooktacular event that's the third largest of its kind in the tri-state area. Take in a seance with medium Glenda Dawson. Or enjoy a paranormal investigation with Mark Keyes from TV's Paranormal 911 and Virginia Rose Centrillo from TV's The Haunted. Hungry? We've got you covered with a psychic breakfast. And you can finish it all up with a masquerade ball and maybe take part in a Samhain ritual. You can also enjoy a special guest presenter, author Christopher Penzek, as well as a live concert with Metamorph. It's all happening October 23rd to October 25th at beautiful Split Rock Resort. All of those are ticketed events, but will be at the Magical Market on Saturday, October 24th, which is completely free and open to the public. You can find nearly 100 unique vendors with all their own goodies. And of course, you'll get get to to see see us us for free. free. So come down to the Split Rock Resort and show us some love. Tickets are available now at PoconoWitchesFestival.com, where you can also find more information about the events. That's PoconoWitchesFestival.com. Come tell us your stories and listen as we tell a few of our own at our very first ever live show. Until then, guys, creep creep on, on, creeping on. And we're back. We're back. Now, Nicole. Yes, Eden. I hear you have something hauntingly good for us. I do. I do. So today we're heading to Birmingham, the most populous city in Alabama. Birmingham's located in the north central part of the state, and the greater Birmingham Hoover metro area is home to over 1.1 million people. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's it's a pretty happening place. Founded in 1871 through the merger of three smaller towns, Birmingham quickly grew into an industrial center for the mining, iron, steel, and railroad industries. Nice. The original settlers in the area were of English ancestry, but as the city grew, it attracted Irish and Italian immigrants as well as African Americans from more rural areas of the South. The new residents provided a ready supply of low-paid, non-union workers for the city's steel mills and blast furnaces, giving Birmingham a competitive edge over the unionized northern and midwestern steel mills. Oh, my dad's old job. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of former steel workers. I never knew that Birmingham was such a powerhouse. Apparently. I did not know. Actually, during this time, Birmingham was nicknamed the Pittsburgh of the South. Oh, okay. I'm like, that's a weird name, but okay. That's very strange. (laughs) Maybe we just find it strange because we live in Pennsylvania. Fair, fair. As a result, Birmingham grew rapidly into one of the primary industrial hubs of the American South. It grew so fast, it was like some magical spell for success, which led to Birmingham's other popular nickname, the Magic City. Oh, okay. By the mid-20th century, Birmingham's steel industry was on the decline, but luckily the city was able to diversify its economy. Today, Birmingham is still a major business center in the southeast. It's known as a center for telecommunications, transportation, electrical power transmission, medical care, higher education, and insurance, as well as being one of the largest banking centers in the U.S. Nice. It's interesting. So when I think of banking, I think of, you know, obviously New York. Yeah. Delaware. Yep. But Birmingham, too. Huge banking city. Wow. Birmingham also has a rich cultural history, and it holds a unique place in the history of the civil rights movement. The activism centered in Birmingham, which was led by Fred Shuttlesworth and supported by Martin Luther King Jr., helped the movement gain national and international recognition. That's cool. A lot of times I think of the South as being kind of like a little behind the times Mm -hmm. on, you know, 
race issues because it's you know they're the ones that wanted to keep the slavery going in yeah, the civil war you know in place. Mm-hmm. yeah so that's cool to know that there's like a big thing with uh, social reform it was actually this movement in birmingham that birmingham basically created um, it's where you know martin luther king jr wrote notes from a birmingham jail oh yeah it was very pivotal and it was really where these nonviolent civil rights activists were continually met with repeated violence from white supremacists and, and police as well. Of freaking course. And the violence visited on these you know, nonviolent protesters and activists was really what helped spark na- nationwide outrage that led to a series of advancements, things that we take for granted today, I think, as people born way after the 60s. Yeah. Things like the desegregation of the South, even parts of the rest of the country. And then the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. You can trace all of that back to the activism in Birmingham. Yeah, because I mean that separate but equal thing. You're never really equal. Yeah. (laughs) Today, visitors can learn about all of the activities that happened in Birmingham in the 50s and 60s by visiting the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. Birmingham also in the 80s, 70s, 80s, and 90s continued to renovate its city downtown. So it also has a very thriving arts and cultural hub, if you will. When you visit Birmingham, you can enjoy things like the beautiful Birmingham Botanical Gardens. Oh, nice. The Birmingham Museum of Art, which has the largest collection of Asian artwork in the Southeast. Oh, wow. That's cool. The McWayne Science Center, which looked super cool. Ooh. And of course, my personal favorite, Vulcan Park and Museum. Spock lives there. Close. The ancient god Vulcan lives there. Okay. Okay. Uh, It features the largest cast iron statue in the world. It's this 56 foot tall statue of the Roman god Vulcan. And it was created for the 1904 World's Fair. He's the Roman god of fire, right? Fire in the forge. Yeah. Okay. So he basically Hephaestus, but Roman. Yeah. And it sits on top of this huge platform, making it even taller. And it kind of looms over like the skyline of Birmingham. It's really cool. Oh, cool. And there's also a museum there where you can learn about the city's history and specifically its industrial history. Nice. A short distance from Vulcan Park is actually our stop for today. Ooh, nice. We are stopping at Sloss Furnace National Historical Landmark. Okay. I think this name sounds familiar to me, so I might know some of what you're going to talk about. It might. It was a pretty big name in the iron and steel industry for mm, almost more than a century. Okay. You mentioning Vulcan, though, uh, made me think of the that terrible last season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. There was one part where Faith was going to be on again, and what was his name? Andrew or something? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was there telling the the new Slayer group um, about Faith and how she, <laughs> and since she killed the one guy that was a Vulcanologist, he's like, and she even killed the most peaceful of creatures. And like, how's her fighting someone who looks like Spock? It's like, Faith killed a Vulcanologist. It's like, why would she want to kill someone who merely studies Vulcans? <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't even know anyway back to <laughs> <laughs> so Slull's furnace was actually birmingham's first blast furnace it was built in 1882 by city founding father colonel james withers Slauss to take advantage of the vast iron ore deposits that run in the nearby foothills of the Southern Appalachian Mountains. Okay. So earlier in the intro, we talked about how Alabama is the only state that has all of the raw ingredients yeah. to make steel. 
it's pretty much all located in the 30-mile vicinity of Birmingham. Cool. Now, the site was an active plant through 1971. After its closure, the site reopened as a natural historical landmark in 1981. It was actually the first blast furnace in the U.S. to be made into a historical landmark. Today, visitors can visit the site, learn about metalworking and its important role in Birmingham's history. They can also take metalworking classes, even even pouring their own iron ore, which is pretty cool. Hmm. Concerts and other arts-related activities are hosted throughout the year at Sloss Furnace. So kind of a really cool repurposed industrial site. Well, it's kind of like um, ours here, what they did with Bethlehem Steel. Mm-hmm. Very similar. I feel like uh, the way that Sloss Furnace was revitalized was a big inspiration for Bethlehem Steel. Yeah, probably. So let me tell you a little bit about Sloss Furnace as it's as a plant and site itself and its history. So initially when they opened, they had two 60-foot-tall, 18-feet-in-diameter blast furnaces that were built on site to produce pig iron. Uh, do you know what pig iron is? I'm not sure. My dad would probably know. He probably does. <laughs> uh, I had to look it up, too. Uh, pig they I- asked him about, like, slag mm-hmm. pits and stuff like that, too. Yeah, like, what is all that? I'm familiar with the terms, I think, just growing Me up too. near a yeah. steel city, and you're like, oh, yeah. So pig iron, it's also known as crude iron. It's the result of smelting iron ore in a furnace. And it's the first step in producing the iron that you need to create wrought iron, cast iron, and steel. So to create pig iron, you basically load up a bunch of iron ore, coke, which is a type of charcoal that's made from coal, usually anthracite coal, and limestone. And you dump all that into the top of the blast furnace. Then you blast a crap ton of air into the bottom of the furnace, which superheats it. And it is very hot inside a blast mm-hmm. furnace. My dad hated <laughs> that part of his job. You're basically working next to a ginormous pressure cooker. Yes. And slowly, as the components heat, the calcium and the limestone combines with the silicates and the iron ore, which forms slag. And then the liquid pig iron collects at the bottom of the furnace under this layer of slag, and it's slowly kind of tapped and drained out, and they pour it into these ingot molds they make from sand. I only know that word from Skyrim. Ingot? Yeah. <laughs> and then you can basically take these ingots of pig iron and refine them further into, you know, wrought iron, steel, that kind of thing. That's why I'm like, I know how to make steel. You take two iron ingots and <laughs> use the smelter. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> so to give you an idea, uh, to produce one ton of pig iron, you start with two tons of ore, one ton of coke, and half a ton of limestone. The operations ton of coke. Ton wow. of coke. Oh my god. Where's Stevie Nicks when you need her? Where's the mirror ball? <laughs> the operations at Sloss Furnace were very productive. It produced over twenty four thousand tons in its first year of operation alone, and its production levels continued to grow super quickly through the eighteen eighties. Okay. Now, blast furnace workers, as you mentioned, your dad's experience hated it. Yep. A lot of them had described their job as, quote, as close to hell as most people ever get. Yeah, that sounds about right. I also, um, fun fact about me in my childhood, I used to be very afraid for my dad's safety because when we would drive past Bethlehem Steel, they have like these giant like crane track things. I don't know what mm-hmm. you call them, but they're up really, really freaking high. And I thought that my dad had to work on those, which he said apparently sometimes he did. But I was like, what if he falls? He's going to die and I won't have a dad. Like I was like really upset by this. I mean, you probably aren't wrong. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, even even today with modern safety precautions, like 
flame retardant clothing and modern ventilators, it's still really dangerous to work in a blast furnace. It is. I mean, he has breathing issues like crazy mm-hmm. from working there. So back in the 1880s when Sloss Furnace first opened, um, just to give you an idea, so these furnaces run at nearly 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, there's bursts of sparks. There's open flames. Tons of steam, lung-searing smoke, and noxious gases um, always result from smelting ore and also the cooling of pig iron. It surrounds you when you're working in a blast furnace. Soot pretty much covers every surface, including your body. Yep. It's hot. It's messy. It's pretty hellish. And it's this hellish workplace at Slal's Furnace where for the first 50 or so years of operation, men work 12-hour days with basically no safety equipment. That is horrible. Mm-hmm. Now, the threat of injury and death was ever-present for workers, and as Sloss Furnace increased production, so did the industrial accidents increase. Men would fall into... Sorry, Eden. This is going to bring back your childhood Probably. <laughs> but men would fall into molten metal from narrow catwalks far above the blast furnace. They were pretty much immediately incinerated. Other men experienced a slower death from months and even years of inhaling poisonous fumes and carbon dioxide, slowly suffocating to death. Yep. And it wasn't just the blast furnaces and their byproducts that were dangerous for workers. Accidents happened all over the ironworks. So you have these huge boiler houses, lots of gears, things that are just large industrial equipment that can be dangerous. Yeah. One particularly awful story I found was about a worker who was on a break and he was eating his lunch. And he leaned a little too close to one of the large flywheels that powered one of the site's boilers. It snagged his clothing, and he started to be slowly pulled into the flywheel. Oh, shit. Despite the best efforts of his coworkers trying to cut him out of his clothing and pull him free, he was crushed over and over again with a large turning wheel. Oh, man. Okay. I think I did hear this before, and that's really upsetting. Yeah, really horrible. It's cool, though, because I don't remember most of what I heard. So, (laughs) (laughs) And if the dangerous hellish working environment of Sloss Furnace wasn't enough, the plant also had its own version of the devil overseeing its fiery shifts. What? His name was James Woodward, and he would go by the nickname Slag. Oh, well, that's apt, I Appropriate. guess. Around the turn of the 20th century, he was the foreman of the graveyard shift, which was a crew of about 150 men who worked from sunset to sunrise. Now, Slag Wormwood was notorious around the site as a cruel and tyrannical foreman. He would push his crew to maintain these really high production levels at all times, even though the number of men working on the crew were much less than those who worked in the daytime. Okay. He would push these high production levels even during the summer months when temperatures on site would reach upwards of 120 degrees. Damn. Mm -hmm. Now, most workers avoided taking the graveyard shift if they could. So spots on the shift were primarily filled by the poorest and most desperate of workers. So guys who were, you know, fresh off the boat from Europe or who had left really rural parts of the South just trying yeah. to escape poverty. Which, I mean, again, similar to my dad because he, he worked swing shift. Mm-hmm. So it was like his schedule's all over the place. But he also did a shit ton of overtime. Mm-hmm. Like it was rare that I saw him during the work week yeah, that much. Just, just working, right? Yeah. Now, the men at Sloss Furnace during the early 1900s were so poor that they actually ended up most of the time living on property. Uh, Sloss had its own worker housing, and basically you could live there, and you would get money to spend at like the company store. It was very close to 
indentured servitude as you could probably get legally at the time. Yeah. And the super downside for these poor guys stuck on the graveyard shift meant that Wormwood could pretty much hit them up for extra shifts whenever he wanted. Oh, my God. And he would. He would make them work on their days off. And he was also notorious for calling people back at a moment's notice to work a few more hours after their shift ended. So he's Lumberg from um, Office Space. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now That would be great. Yeah. (laughs) Great. Slag Wormwood insisted on these high production levels because he hoped it would impress the Sloss Furnace higher-ups and he could rise to the company. That is very normal in business. Yep, yep. And the extreme risks he forced his workers to take meant that the number of accidents among his crew were extremely high. Some of you might die, but that's a risk I'm willing to take. Exactly. Many workers were injured and at least 47 men died during his time as a foreman. Now, to put that in perspective for you, the death rate on Wormwood's graveyard furnace crew was 10 times higher than any other crew who worked at the at Sloss Furnace. Okay, yeah, makes sense. Uh, all that changed around 1906, however. Okay. Hooray that, change. Yeah, change is always good, right? Well, not for, always, but well, for, for, for everyone except for Slag Wormwood. One day he was walking on a catwalk on top of the largest blast furnace on the site, which was nicknamed Big Alice by okay. workers. The official story was that he was overcome by methane gas and toppled off the catwalk into the furnace. However, Wormwood rarely ventured up to the catwalks himself. He preferred sending members of his crew up there instead. That makes sense for him. Yep. Totally tracks with his personality. This led to a rumor that Slag Wormwood was dragged up to the catwalk and actually pushed off by his frantic and fed up work crew. Um, yeah, that, you know. Doesn't seem outside the realm of possibility. Exactly, yeah. Now, for years after Slag's death, the workers who manned the spots near Big Alice reported feeling really unsettled when they worked overnight shifts. Most of them just attributed it to maybe Wormwood's angry spirit or just the creepiness of working in a hellish landscape. Oh my God, no, the asshole's haunting the building. <laughs> Several workers and even a night watchman reported that they would be pushed from behind by a mysterious force. Oh, shit. Some of them even heard a deep voice yelling at them to get back to work. Oh, God. Even in death, he's still an asshole. Yep, even in death, he's still like a tyrannical dickhead. Great. Visitors to the site still report incidents of being pushed by unseen forces, especially when touring the blast furnace area. Oh, fuck. No. (laughs) And they've heard agonizing screams through the site. Oh, man. Other visitors have reported seeing dark and disfigured humanoid shapes darting between structures. Ooh. Super creepy. Yeah, I don't like, like that very much. It's not even like much. shadow people. It's like it looks like a full-on corporeal thing. Shit. However, despite all this nonsense, Slag Wormwood still seems to be the most active and violent spirit on site, and several other disturbing encounters have been connected to him over the years. Wow. Are you ready? I am ready. Like th- These are what caught my eye, and I was like, holy crap, I yeah. gotta do this. Sorry. In 1947, three shift supervisors went missing. The men were eventually found on site. They were locked in a small boiler room in a far-flung part of the ironworks, all unconscious. When the men were roused, they weren't quite sure exactly how they had gotten there, but each of them separately recalled that the last thing they remembered was being approached by a man with badly burnt skin. He angrily shouted at them, Get back to work and push some steel! And that was the last thing they remembered. Oh my god. Now, if that wasn't terrifying enough, the craziest, scariest encounter that I found 
and the one that really did trigger me to tell the story was the story of Sam Blumenthal. Uh, Sam was the night watchman at Sloss Furnace during its later years, up to the time it closed in 1971. On the last night before the plant officially closed, Sam was walking his rounds, and he stopped at the foot of Big Alice for one last look, remembering all the old times. All the old good times that Mm -hmm. we had here in hell. Mm -hmm. Now, suddenly, Sam was face-to-face with a frightening entity that he described as, quote, an evil half-man, half-demon. Oh, great. It's sloss. Or, I mean, slag. Slag. Yeah. This, this thing he encountered began to physically push him towards the stairs that led to the top of Big Alice. When Sam resisted, the entity began to beat him. Oh, my God. Luckily, he managed to get away. He was deeply shaken and injured, so he went immediately for medical help. During his exam, the doctor discovered that Sam was covered in severe fist-sized burn marks. Holy crap. And... Sam, the night watchman, never returned to the plant again. That is crazy. I wouldn't go back there either. Right? Like, mm. You cannot pay me enough. (laughs) Uh, To this day, people still report seeing what they assume to be slag wormwood haunting the furnaces, especially Big Alice. Uh, During the Halloween season, they do do haunted tours and things like that. So you can go and you might have a ghostly encounter. Some folks on those ghost tours have reported Feelings of being pushed yeah. or seeing weird, dark, darting shapes. So, Eden, what do you think? Would you check out Sloss Furnace? Um, that might be a no for me. <laughs> really? It's the first time I've said that, but that's a bit too much. I do not want to encounter him at all. Yeah, I don't think I would go on like the haunted tour. I, I would, like, I would catch a concert there though, and like I would yeah. check it out in general as like a historic site. But I don't need to. I mean, maybe I would do a haunted tour, I but like... I wouldn't stay there. I would not like do like any sort of overnight. Our favorites, you know. Yeah, I believe Zach included an overnight there. Oh God. Uh, so it has appeared on a couple different um, ghost hunting shows, like ghost adventures and stuff. But overall, I yeah, I don't need to risk running into a demon no because that's definitely what it sounds like that, yeah that is one angry pissed off spirit who wants everyone to be as miserable as he was because mm-hmm. he's still miserable in death just like he was in life mm-hmm. so great all right <laughs> thanks for that nicole you're welcome uh my sources for this week were wikipedia birmingham al.gov tripadvisor.com frightfurnace.com TravelChannel.com, HauntedRooms.com, HowStuffWorks, uh, the Chicago Tribune, and of course, SlossFurnace.com. Very nice. All right, I guess that's the end of our show. Wrapping up another one. If you would like to reach out to us for any reason, you can do so via our email, which is RoadsideHorrorShow at gmail.com. You can also stop by our website, which is Roadside Horror Show at podbean.com. We're also on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Roadside Horror Show and on Twitter at Roadside Horror. We'd like to thank Yox Rocks Designs for our logo and E Massey for our intro and outro music. All right, Roadsters, until next time. Creep, creep on, on, creeping on. on.